Howdy friends, welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave, Tonzilla X-Pod, over at EscapingTheCave.com. I am your friendly and cordial host, Todd. Hello there, going to be hearing from Brian here in a couple of minutes. show was recorded earlier today, October the 25th, 2020. That's the record date. It's going to be episode number 92. Had a couple of weeks off, spent uh, about a week out in the great southwest, man. That is my part of the country. I lived out there for... Close to 10 years, I guess, between Colorado, New Mexico, and Arizona. I love it. Haven't been back there <laughs> since, yeah, about about a week. Actually, during the 2016 election. So every election cycle, every election's about to hit. I, I guess I go to the Southwest. I tell you, that's a good place to be when you're living in Michigan in October. Temperatures 85 to 90 degrees. No humidity, just gorgeous. Hanging around Sedona, went to the Grand Canyon, Montezuma Well, Montezuma Castle. Went to Jerome. Thought that was going to be a ghost town. Not a ghost town, it's a tourist trap. Regardless, just awesome. Hike it around in the red rocks, the red sand, the red dirt out there. A beautiful place to be. I got back here and I needed the time off, man. Uh, no politics, no social media at all. Nothing going on. I didn't even take my computer. Just had the phone there. I didn't track anything for a full week. And it was wonderful. I came back here feeling like an organic human being again. Probably shows in this episode, too. Some of the things we're going to get into today... It's an expansive episode. It's going to be drawing significantly from ideas put forth in Dan Carlin's podcast, a podcast called Common Sense, specifically his uh, Recipe for Caesar episode that he recorded back in April. I highly implore you to go listen to this. In fact, I implore you so much, I am going to link someone else's podcast in the show notes. Go listen to this. And listen to the Iceberg episode that follows it. He doesn't put out many of these. He'll tell you why in this episode when you go listen to it. But they are exquisite pieces of audio. Probing. Please go listen to them. What other podcaster tells you to go listen to another podcast when he doesn't have them as a guest on the show? (laughs) We're not competitors. Sort of barking up the same tree in a lot of ways. Brian and I connect uh, Carlin's talk radio concept something he calls the heat, we connect that to today's addictive outrage industrial complex. The main line of which, I believe, has moved from talk radio only to be amplified by social media. It's worse now than talk radio could ever hope to be 20, 30 years ago. It's the same idea. I'm going to have more on this in the addendum after the show. Also talk about how this technology may be encouraging us to de-domesticate or even devolve. Working as the mechanism to collectively scrape away our aforementioned thin veneer of civilization. We're going to talk about the path to empathy. You're going to be hearing a lot more about that as the show progresses, as the shows progress, as the podcast progresses, I guess I should say. Talk about how many of us have lost sight not only of, you know, the outgroup's humanity, their humanity, but also how we've quarantined our own humanity away. How regaining that is a reunification imperative. You want to put the Star Spangles Humpty Dumpty back together again, that's one of the essential pieces, in my opinion. 
finding that path to empathy for people that you do not necessarily agree with. Again, a lot more on that's going to be coming. As I mentioned, the election is nine days away as I record this. So is its aftermath just over a week from now. We discuss how 2020, this election cycle feels a lot like 2016's did at this point in time. How it was a given that Hillary Clinton was going to win. It smells familiar. Scares us, both Brian and I. We even argue a bit, I dare say, about the Electoral College. As someone who's opposed to direct democracy, which is my rule, I am a supporter of the Electoral College. Brian is not. And then we wrap up with an anecdote-driven exploration of the relationship between ideological and traditional theological religions. How that's related to the aforementioned path to empathy idea. And of course, you're going to be hearing a lot more about this as well. Once again, this is episode number 92, recorded October 25th, 2020. Hope you enjoy it. We're good. How about yeah. you? We are, uh, I don't know how we are. We were in Arizona for a week. That was cool. Uh, that sounds nice. Yes. Sedona, right? Sedona's gorgeous. It is gorgeous and it is hippocentric. Uh. There was a guy, <laughs> I swear to God, we go to the Safeway because we had an Airbnb, this luxurious, we didn't pay for any of this, by the way, but this luxurious home out in the middle, of, like on the south end of town, uh, in this neighborhood overlooking um, Bell Mountain, I think it was. The guy who invented LASIK surgery has an $18 million home in this neighborhood. We oh. did not stay in that home. We took pictures of it. <laughs> we, we flew a drone over it. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Oh, wow. that, anyway, that's the kind of neighborhood it was. And it was fantastic. So we go to the Safeway. And there's a guy at the freaking Safeway panhandling. It's one of these rainbow critters that I used to talk about when I was traveling. <laughs> this is the kind of place Sedona is. The, the the variety of hippie in Sedona. This one had long hair. It had the you know the typical rainbow gathering regal or regalia. Oh, I see. He had the, he had the uniform on. Huh? But he had a chicken on his shoulder. <laughs> a chicken. Did did you get a picture? I didn't. Uh, I, I, I didn't even. Th- I was so dumbfounded. I mean, I've seen I'm a lot hitch- hitchhiking around this country, backpacking around Latin America. I've seen some things. I would have loved to have seen. I would have loved to have had a photograph that you took of that because you take you take some pretty astonishingly good pictures. I would have loved to. I didn't even think about it. I was so dumbfounded looking at this. It's like a cock with a cock on his shoulder. <laughs> yeah, that's bad. But okay, yeah, I didn't even think to take the phone out of my pocket or anything. But <laughs> other than that, Sedona's fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> well, that and the aura photos. There were places, places you could get your aura, a photo of your aura taken. Oh, for fuck's sake. Are yeah. you serious? Yeah, and crystals uh, all over the place. So we were wondering, uh, if you went and took the crystals to the aura place, would that fuck everything up? What would that do to you? Would that be like, I don't know, exposing your aura could, to dilithium crystals when it's being photographed and just like end the space-time continuum? Well, I was going to say that would cause some sort of a tear in the spa- in the uh, in the time continuum, <laughs> yeah, wouldn't right, it? Right, right. No, that, that chicken guy, though, he was panhandling. And my idea... Instead of giving him money, we'll give him some food, you know, because he's hungry, obviously, and he has a cock to feed on his shoulder. So we figured we'd go down to KFC. Oh, we all. <laughs> Just go to KFC and get him, like, the little six-piece meal and see what he thought of that. Oh. Other than that, Sedona was 
freaking great. Girlfriend yeah. sprained her ankle at the Grand Canyon. Ah, yeah, yeah. She was on crutches, hobbling around the rest of the oh, trip. But that's that's no fun. Yeah, it was all right. She didn't break it. It wasn't too bad. She could she could get around a little bit, but yeah, it was uh, really nice. And flying during the pandemic, that was interesting. I bet that was exciting. Yeah, it wasn't so bad. The airports were not empty. A lot of things were closed. I noticed that, like the you know the little restaurants and shops and things, they weren't fully staffed. People on the plane were fine. They weren't ornery, weren't cranky. They weren't refusing to wear their masks. Well, you know, you only hear about those, right? You hear about yeah. a few of those. How many flights are there a day? And you hear about the one person who threw a fit over the right. mask. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. It, it, you know, I, I mentioned this last year. And when we went out, not last year, it feels like last year. It's only been a few months. But right after the uh, the shutdowns here in Michigan, I hadn't been out of the house in like five weeks. And I go to the store. Oh, I went to Office Max. And I expected everybody to be like just raging. You know, because all the stories we're hearing about people having to wear their masks and all this. <laughs> and everybody was just like, hey, we're kind of, it's almost like, I don't know, like a direct equivalent, but we're all experiencing this bullshit together. Doesn't this suck attitude? Yes. Yes. And uh, and, there, and there, I think there's some positivity to that, right? Yeah. You know, in my life too, I've not seen one single or heard of one single incident where someone's gotten overly belligerent. Sorry, I think I overmodulated there. Overly belligerent uh, over over a mask. I've heard a few <clears throat> stories of a few people grumbling and blah blah blah. But I don't, you know, I don't know where they're digging up all these stories that you see online. And I, I imagine on Facebook is probably loaded with them. But uh, yeah. uh, you know, it's just like you said, th- there might be some sort of weird positivity out of all of this. And that I think on some level we're all realizing that we're going through this together. And maybe it's our innate tribalism, right? We're all in the same tribe right now. A shared struggle. It's a shared experience that often we don't get to have because we all have such different disparate disparate experiences, you know, lately, at least over the past 20 years or so. And this is one experience that's that's literally affecting everyone, everyone on the planet. If that that doesn't tell you that this is, you know, that we're, that we're one, one species, one planet, then I don't know what else could. Yeah. I don't know. That's my optimism. (laughs) It is your optimism. No, I, I there, there's something in, uh, boy, I'm having a rough time getting my head in gear today. It's been two weeks. I haven't, I got, I, I should put this disclaimer out there. I have not turned on the computer in nearly two weeks. That's why I was late today. I forgot that I had to hook everything back up because I haven't been on the computer <laughs> since before the trip. So I'm like, oh, Good for you. plus you I should re- be chill. Not bad. I'm really curious to see where the show goes today. <laughs> I like chill. I like chill, Todd. Chill, Todd is fun. Oh I Jesus like Christ! Now you're <laughs> pissing me off. See, yeah, I, I, I have this nice little energy, and everybody, yeah, Todd, you're too angry. I like it when you're on ketamine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I found. I, I know those buttons. I know those buttons. Yeah. Bam. Yeah. Okay. Well, don't push them too often. Uh, <laughs> no, but I, I don't know. It's just, I, I haven't had this computer on in two weeks. I, I had to come in here. I rearranged the, the whole studio last night too, which made oh. things absolutely worse. But I haven't really been exposed to the news too much until we got back. I mean, we went out there with uh, my girlfriend's parents and her dad is a huge conservative, fundamentalist Christian. I've talked about him on this show a number of times. Good, oh. Great guy. Great guy, mm-hmm. but politically, he and I do not line up, right? Uh, ideologically, um, theologically, we don't yeah. line up. Yeah. In the past, we've had some pretty passionate political conversations, mm-hmm. and they've sort of, uh, especially over the summer, have <clears throat> I found a way to sort of walk the middle with him, where I don't uh, start opining so much. 
that makes sense at all? Like yeah, I'm not, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. not sitting there preaching. I, I I found a way to try to find something that he and I have in common, something we agree upon. When he goes off the rails into the political fundamentalism or the religious fundamentalism, I just sort of stop and just sit there. I don't really react. What I found was that the conversations became, if not productive, at least moving in civil. that direction. And civil, right? Yeah. yeah, we found common areas of interest. And wouldn't it be nice if we could all figure out that, you know, I mean, just because we don't agree doesn't mean we have to hate each other. Where did that come from? <sighs> I think it's... Well, that's a whole, that's a whole show. Well, but. that's... Yeah. Yeah, I think it's an important show, actually. And did you let you did listen to the Dan Carlin podcast, right? Yes, yes, that was really good. I listened to it last night. I also read the Taibbi article for you. Yeah. I did my homework, Todd. I should have reread the Taibbi thing. I forgot half of what's in it. But Matt Taibbi's a wonderful author. <laughs> he's a wonderful yes. writer for the listeners. He's, Go check no, out terrific. Check out Taibbi on Substack. Also Andrew Sullivan Substack. But uh, what was I saying? The um, 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 Carlin thing and why yeah. we hate each other. That that episode. I listened to it on the plane back. Um, the heat from Arizona. Yes, 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 yes. And the episode is called uh, Common Sense. Or the show's called Common Sense. The episode was Recipe for Caesar. For listeners, go check this out. It's Dan Carlin. He has mm. two episodes that are in the current list of his episode, his uh, podcast called Common Sense. Mm-hmm. The two that are there are phenomenal. They are two of the best podcasts I have ever heard. I don't know anything about this guy. I think he comes from a conservative talk rate. I know he comes from a talk background. I, I think he has a conservative background as well. Uh, but he is really digging deeply into the core of what the problem here is. He, at least he's starting to. And he's talking about, like you, like you just said, the heat. Why mm-hmm. is it that we're at each other's throats? Why is it that we don't see each other as human beings but political beliefs? Good versus good or evil. And he and his point was, you know, um, whether it's uh, a radio because he has a radio background, right? He, like you said, he came out of talk radio. He had a probably a fairly long career in it. Um, he didn't indicate which way he was leaning, but it was conservative talk radio, and uh, because that's pretty much all there was for the first twenty years of of, of talk radio, fifty years of talk radio. That's true. Uh, but but nonetheless, you know, the point was, you know, in order for them to keep the ratings and keep the commercials coming in and keep the ad revenue coming in and keep their payrolls up. They had to keep the heat up, keep yeah. people tuning in. It's, he, he always mentions it, the heat, the heat, keep it hot and, and crank the heat up as high as you can go and people will stay glued to the radio or the television and that's what is driving their revenue. It all comes back to economics. Is the heat the same thing as the outrage? I think so. I, I, I think I think so. Maybe maybe there's some nuances, but I think so. I think it's a lot of it's the outrage. Some of it's the fake outrage, um, you know, where you're you're hearing things that are obviously partisan, and it's you know, um, but but it's 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 cranking up your emotions, cranking up the heat on your emotions, getting you fired up, and keeps you coming back for more, hungry for more, because those emotions, while they might feel icky they there's something to them that makes them addicting i don't i don't know that they feel icky though i mean i i think to some people they do and i think maybe we think they should feel icky but i think there's something that's really instinctive evolutionary and primal about that anger about that threat about someone that you have a group of people that you and yours can go fight 
I agree with you on that. Uh, to me, I say they feel icky because they do to me. I don't like that feeling of, of being, of, of getting pissed off over something I heard on the radio. Yeah. You know, maybe it's because I know radio. Um, I, I don't like the way that feels. I feel manipulated, you know, right. um, but, but maybe other people might tune in and, you know, and, 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 and are drawn to it. And, the, and, and then, you know, they, 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 they found their tribe. Right. Um, and they, even like the the what is it Limbaugh you know his group he has a name for the people that that, that come to him he's he's branded that ditto heads ditto heads right and he's he's branded that and and uh, uh, all of that stuff so they're not stupid right um, and they just keep that heat turned up and that's what keeps us separate it keeps us being the other right. and uh, that that's that's really that's really sad and disappointing to me. It's 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 not a good place for the species to be. No, it's not. Sorry, I, I just kind of went off. No, on it's that fine. I, one thing I, that I uh, wanted to get to touch on a little bit, I guess, uh, was the fake outrage. Does it matter if it's fake? Does it matter if the source of the outrage is contrived or not? Outrage is outrage, right? It's mm. the emotion that counts. It's the it's the visceral response. That's what Alul called it in his uh, his book. And Carlin touched on that in the show last week as well. He he's ta- that I listened to last week. He's talking about the uh, he didn't call it a visceral response, but he used a direct synonym for it. It's yeah. the thing that 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 fuels that fire. It gets an emotional, a visceral feeling within you mm. that I don't know inspires you, fuels you, motivates you. Uh, outrages you i guess yeah yeah and you know asking the question is the fake outrage really outrage i think that's a multi-layered that's not what i asked does it matter if it's fake does it matter if it's fake Hmm. i don't know the visceral response is the goal right so does it matter if it's contrived Hmm. no i guess it doesn't you know because, you know, for whatever reason it pisses you off or creates the outrage, even though maybe that might be something that's contrived, mm-hmm. something that's false, um, that, at the end, like you said, you know, at the end of the day, the outcome is you are outraged. Um, and, and, and those emotions are real. And let's follow right? that. What's what, They're felt. Why is that? And what's the result of that? And if you, if you listen to Alul... And I think other psychologists, again, I'm two weeks off here, so <laughs> I'm having to drain, drag things out of the center of my head here. Uh, but isn't that the route? Isn't that the pathway to shutting down the faucet of reason? Your ability yes. to critically think. When you're an emotional ball of anxiety, rage, mm-hmm. and anger, you're no longer thinking rationally. You're no longer thinking critically, correct? Correct, and and it's funny you bring that up, and and you and you've been kind of tuned out for a couple of weeks. That's exactly what uh, Mar talked about on Friday night. They spent a good bit of the segment talking about the complete lack of critical thinking in the United States right now. Oh, we've been talking about that for twenty years. Yeah, yeah, it's it's there's just nothing. That, in fact, it was a former senator that was on there talking about it. She said the problem is there's no critical thinking. Nobody's actually thinking. We're just walking around feeling all the time. Visceral. Yeah, that's visceral. What's the definition of visceral, right? It's a feeling, right? A, a, mm-hmm. An emotional, a sensational, as in mm-hmm. senses, response, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. If, you, if you can contrive anything, and this is the source, again, I, I'm always going to bring this back to Jacques Louis. You know what I'm going to do, Brian? I'm going to buy it's that propaganda. book for you, and I'm going to send it to you. I'm going to send you this book. <laughs> this is going to be my Thanksgiving present for you, Brian. Uh, okay. Because it, it, it all comes back to that. That is 
the mechanism that the propagandist is trying to trigger because if they can trigger a visceral response and they can also inseminate you with that aforementioned moral certitude, that moral imperative, then not only are you not thinking critically, you're also in a state of self-righteousness. And you don't need to think critically because you are on the side of God. Yeah, you are on the right side. Right. God being a metaphor. Uh, Yeah, I put right in quotes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I, no, you're absolutely clearly you're absolutely right. And I, by the way, just as a side note, I'm always impressed with your ability to take a quote out of a book that you've read and just know exactly what's. I, I can read something and forget the paragraph I just read in like five minutes, but you're just you're really good at like remembering what you read. It takes a lot of work I, to do that. I must I must say that really that no that impresses me about your brain. Yeah. Uh, you're just really good at that. I, I can do it with ideas. I can't do that with direct quotes. If you ask me to quote something, like I think in the last episode I was trying to quote something from Lippman. I couldn't figure out. I just have the general concept of the idea that I can I can kind yeah. of hold up, but that takes a lot of work. No, that's that's still impressive. That's, no, thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. What were we saying? Um, nah, oh, sorry. No, sorry, I didn't mean I didn't mean to sidetrack no, us. But yeah, fine. we were talking about fake outrage and 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 then that well, whole pro, you know, the Elul and and right. and how that basically is what makes the world go right, right. Right. So you've got the visceral response. You've got the inseminated sense of moral certitude, the moral imperatives, the sense of self righteousness. Now, you're talking about. Dan Carlin's episode and talking about the heat and the outrage and what talk radio used to do. And mm-hmm. I think we have transitioned from that. I think if you take the Alul model with, again, the um, uh, moral certitude and the visceral response deactivating critical thought, I think we have taken the old talk radio model, right, that was limited to these radio stations and whoever would tune in in their car or at work or at home, right, <laughs> right, live and right. local. I think we have taken that and we have we have gone from the Roman legionnaires to the atomic weapon with this on the internet. I think we have taken that model into the social media world and yeah. put it into everyone's pocket and taught everyone how to not only engage in and not only how to wallow in the muck, but also how to manufacture it themselves. Well, not only that, but also creating a system that forces them through their lizard brain to constantly pull that phone out and look at it. Right. That system of rewards and punishments. So it keeps you looking at your phone at bullshit information. Yeah. What? I mean, what system is more perfect to, to, to bring down a civilization than that? Right. <laughs> Let yeah. me get you addicted to the source of shitty information. Right. And then... There it is. Yeah. Discuss. What's you know? the, there's two things. What's the source of the addiction? And another direction I'd like to go with that is you, you talk about tearing down the civilization. I'm going to take it back to that uh, Ken Burns documentary from Vietnam and scraping away the thin veneer of civilization. We're basically de- de-evolving ourselves or devolving ourselves yeah, back sure. to uh, a primal, primitive, barbaric state. It is barbaric. Pure, pure emotion, right? Pure tribalism, pure emotional tribalism. I mean, that's just, I mean, it's, the name of the show is perfect. Is um, We're still in the cave. We haven't, we're not escaping it. We're going back in the cave. Right, right. That's what it feels like to me sometimes. I mean, yeah. there are days when I'm thinking, man, there is hope for humanity. And then usually something will happen. And I'm just, <laughs> I can't, man, I cannot do I'm it. I'm just really disappointed most of the time. But uh I still try to keep my optimistic, um, my optimistic part of my brain engaged, 
And I got to tell you, leaving Facebook was very helpful. You know, I think mm-hmm. my, I, I, I feel that my mental health is markedly improved. I feel it since I, I, I deleted Facebook off my phone. I yeah. haven't seen Facebook since I told you. Was that been six weeks now? Nice. Six, eight weeks? Yeah. So anyway, I'm sorry if that changed the subject, but yeah. it's like you said, um, it, you know, we're, we're going back to that, that emotional, uh, visceral, uh, you know, act, react, tribal, caveman and cave woman kind of kind of functioning where we're there there's there's just a very thin veneer between you know us uh, you know living in a cave and living in civilization it's very thin we're not that far from from where we were a hundred thousand years ago are we no we're no. really not well here's the thing one one piece that I was going to try to write up and I was going to integrate into the podcast at some point in time was domestication. Like we are a self-domesticated species. Cats are the only other species that I can think of that have even come close to self-domestication, right? They've yeah. done it because <laughs> they rely on people for food. They figured out if they can domesticate themselves to people, people will feed them. Right, right. There aren't dogs like that? Isn't that isn't that canines? Isn't that what happened with canines? Uh, yeah, probably. Were they intentional? Yeah, probably. But but dogs are more dependent. You know, they're more emotionally attached to people, yeah. whereas cats are just pure self-interest. Could give a shit about what you. I, yeah. That's why I love them. <laughs> I really do. They're honest. They're real. <laughs> you yeah. know, they don't. They're not kissing my ass. No, licking no my pretense. hand. No, feed me, fucker. <laughs> It's true. Uh, it is. It's so true. Uh, but the self-domestication thing is is something that I think we figured out. And I trace this in this. I got a lot of help from uh, Yuval Harari on this and his book, Sapiens. It's fantastic. But we, we domesticated ourselves because we figured out that the many will overpower the stronger one. So if you've got somebody who's rampaging through your little tribe, raping all mm-hmm. the women, stealing all the food, killing all the men or whatever, if you gather together in a group, Mm-hmm. You can control that cocksucker. You know yeah. what I mean? You can yeah. you, you can kill him. You can gang up on him where one of you won't be able to do a darn thing about it. Ten of you can kill him. That is how I think, and he, he put forth, that society began to evolve. And we began to sort of correct or domesticate our own behavior. We got, mm-hmm. you know, these, these emotions, these impulses to kill our neighbor. There's another guy who says that each and every one of us has the impulse to kill our neighbor. We just don't act on it. We don't let ourselves feel it. But it's in there somewhere. And we've learned over eons and millennia how to temper that, how to sort of suppress that, how to integrate so, so we can integrate into a society. Mm-hmm. And I think this technology, and we can have a discussion about going back another hundred years if you want, but this particular technology and be this addiction to the visceral response, this addiction to this primal barbaric outrage, this emotional torrent, I think, is, I think that is the thin veneer that's being scraped away, that we're going back into this jungle tribal state where every emotion, every thought, everything needs to be expressed and it yeah. needs to be inflicted upon someone at times. Yeah. Enforced, right? And, and, and you know, my opinion, my my emotions matter, right? Uh, to you. You should you should care how I feel about this issue. Right. Why? Well why? Let's let's Why com- do I care how you feel about this issue? What do I give a shit what you feel? 
We need right? let's let's come up with a name for the, uh, the 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 guy back in the jungle, the bully back in the jungle. He needs a name. Let's call him. I don't know. Well, Garth. We'll call him Garth. So Garth, Garth had these emotions, had these opinions, had these wants and needs that he felt everyone had to, hmm. uh, you know, um, succumb to, or mm-hmm. ha- that he had the right to inflict upon them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know. So is there a correlation here where my opinion? is you you must acquiesce or listen to or consider each and every whim of emotion that I have is there a correlation to that is there is that the part of the thin veneer that we're coming that we're sort of winding ourselves back to wow wow that is you that oof, you just you just laid waste to my brain um it's, it feels like that's part of survival of the fittest. That's the first thing that came to my mind, right? Yeah. Survival of the fittest isn't necessarily about physical prowess. It's about uh, intellectual and emotional prowess. And if you, through our evolution, even going back 100,000 years, I'm sure there have been people that have figured out that if I can get an emotional reaction mm-hmm. out of that cave guy over there, I can get what I want, right? I can get rewarded, or not, right? It could end up exploding in my face, you know, and being a bad thing. Um, or, you know, you basically the art of manipulation <laughs> goes back to our to our our, our primal ancestors. It's politics. Is that, is that the fittest? If if you're the best manipulator, are, is that the fittest person? I have, emotion. Is that know, what they mean by survival of the fittest? I think yeah. it might. Well, I think that factors in. I think that we we sort of evolved ourselves into that. Socially, we evolved ourselves into that, but only when it uh, when we started to move into societies. Yeah, you know, and that's what's really going on right now, right? Wouldn't you say? I mean, I, I you know, on a mass scale, we're being emotionally manipulated, right? Sure. Yeah, and it's bad. absolutely, it's, and it's very bad, and it's and it's sending us, like you said, it's devolving us. Yeah, it's, de- it's devolving us emotionally, first intellectually, and and emotionally. Right? What if it's a pathway? What if what if this is the, this de-evolution or yeah, de-evolution? How do you say that? Just devolve. 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 Okay. So what yeah. if we're devolving? In you know we we evolved incrementally. So imagine we're on like a roller coaster and we're going up this hill toward the crest and we reach the crest right. So we've got point A a quarter of the way up. Point B, a half a way up. Point C, three quarters of the way up. We're at the top. So we passed all these four stages coming up. Now the roller coaster is rolling back. Are we going to go through the three-quarter stage, the half stage, the quarter stage before we get back to the complete and total uh, jungle barbarism from whence we sprang? So Do we the, need to hit rock bottom, right? Yeah. So are we, if we did, if we hit that, say, I don't know, I don't. I, I would have to chart this out and think about it for an hour, but say three quarters was what you're talking about, where we learned basically politics, how yeah. to man, psychologically and emotionally manipulate people. Yeah. Okay. If we're devolving now, is that what we're seeing? Are we only hitting the three quarter point on our way back to zero? So uh, we maybe. get past that, or what's it? What's at the half stage? What's at the quarter stage? Is that physical? It, like a, what I like to call the warlord state, where mm. he who has the most guns and the biggest muscles controls everything. Do you think we're heading that way? I don't know, and that scares me. I don't have your optimism when it comes. I don't know. <laughs> I'm looking for any indication that we're not. Let's let's put it that well, way. Well, it's it, it's going to require that we continue to have a, 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 a you know needs met, right? The basic needs, higher the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Our basic needs are going to have to be met. As soon as some of those needs aren't being met, um, 
we're in trouble. And I think what, what really scares, and I understand, I get that a lot of this other emotional conversation, intellectual conversation, and the de-evolution or devolution de- of that, I think is important. But one of the things that really needs to be conti- uh, considered to, uh, to give what you're saying teeth is the fact that the social fabric is falling apart, the social contract that we have, that we're going to take care of each other, and that the, you know, the government through taxation is going to help take care of its citizens. When that starts coming apart, when, people, when unemployment starts getting to a level where folks get desperate, I think you'll see what you're talking about. Yeah. That's why it's important to keep people fed. It's important to keep people kind of, kind of fat, dumb, and happy, with, for lack of a better word, right. um, f- fairly satisfied. When people start feeling not only emotionally threatened, but physically threatened, where, what am I going to eat tomorrow? And when enough people get like that, that's when, we, 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 that's when that veneer starts to come apart. Right. Well, that's, that's the um, Che Guevara thing where <clears throat> people who um, – how did he put this? Again, I'm, I'm trying to <laughs> – I wish I could remember the quote. See, this would be a lot I easier. Just, I'm, I could just, I'm impressed that you remember yeah, it was him. You know? he, he had this idea that people without guns can't revolutionize. And I think he also had some philosophy about those basic needs being met. In other words, the soil has to be fertile. I think what you're talking about is not necessarily just the de-evolution of society or civilization, I guess, uh, yeah. but making things ripe for a revolution. That's when people revolutionize, when they're hungry. True. That's true. They become susceptible to demagogues. They, uh, the, the, the recipe for Caesar, you can add that little spice to what Carlin was talking about last week. Mm-hmm. If those needs aren't being met, you will follow anyone who will promise to meet them for you. That's why it's good for politicians to pass things that are um, social programs. Yeah. It keeps people happy. It keeps people keeps their health care. It keeps them fed. Uh, it allows them to go to the grocery store with their um, you know bridge cards or whatever, yeah. um, so that so that their families are fed. If their families are fed and there's a roof over their head and those like bottom three basic needs in the hierarchy of needs are met, generally people stay pretty docile. That was when the that, word I was going to use, docile. Yeah, yeah when, that, when that kind of comes apart, when those needs aren't being met, and I got to say, with a 26% unemployment rate, which is what they're saying is the actual unemployment rate right now, um, you know, that's getting into de- depression era mm-hmm. um, 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 uh, unemployment. And they're talking about pulling, uh, pulling out some of those social programs and uh, unfunding them and stuff like that. That really pisses people off. Because people depend on that stuff. In order for people to remain civil, they need to have those needs met. And, and when they don't, that's when you get a revolution, right? right? Look, look back in history. It happens every time. The French Revolution, I mean, uh, you know, uh, even our own revolution. Um, and, uh, and so you, you got to get that done. And, and once that comes apart, then that's when, that's when I'm hunkering down. Yeah. Well, you know I, I, I talked a lot with a friend of mine out in Arizona. I did meet up with a buddy of mine out there. Had a really interesting chat with him and his girlfriend, which I do want to get to at some point today. Please remind me to swing back to that. But, okay. <laughs> uh, it's really good. <laughs> but uh, one of the things that I talked to him about was something I've mentioned on the show a number of times and something that I struggle with mightily, uh, at least retaining the pathway to empathy. Yeah. Okay. And what yeah. the things that you're talking about, what I'm thinking when you're talking about the economy failing and unemployment and all this other stuff, there are vast swaths of rural America who have been experiencing just that thing for 15 years. My hometown was one of them. 
It was factory-based. I went back there. I've probably mentioned it a million times on this program. I apologize for being redundant, but I went back there for the first time in probably 11 years back in 2009. All of the factories, save two or three, had dried up and left. Mm-hmm. People were bartering services. I'll fix your transmission. You fix my furnace. Yeah. They've been yeah. experiencing this for a really, really, really long time, and it's quiet. You know, if you're off in the liberal, progressive, woke flake bubble, you're not going to hear authentic, genuine stories about this. All you're going to hear are the horror stories about these evil tea partiers or whatever. Right. You you have no concept of what has taken them there. What has made them receptive to those ideas? What's made them receptive to these revolutionary concepts? Right? Exactly. And if it wasn't, you know, if it wasn't for probably some social safety nets, places like your hometown would have completely, you know, would have completely fallen apart. But there are enough social safety nets that keep people fed, provide, you know, housing, Section 8 housing, all that kind of stuff that keep, at least keep a roof over people's heads. That's why when people talk about, oh, we got to get rid of this program and get rid of that program, you're really putting, um, a, putting our, our society in danger by taking away these social safety nets, it's really important. And I, and that's the liberal side of me, but it's also, yeah. uh, it's also a, a self-preservation side. That's what keeps people calm and keeps people playing by the rules. When you're desperate, you stop playing by the rules. What kind of visceral response do you get from a starving man? Precisely, precisely. Or, 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 or a man with a starving family. Right. Do you want to see some? You want to see somebody come unglued? Right. Ballad of John Brown. It's a Bob Dylan song. I think it's yeah. John Brown. Hollis yeah. Brown. Ballad of Hollis Brown. Hollis. Go listen to the yeah. lyrics of that. That's that's what happens when a guy's starving. Yeah, that's just sent a chill up my spine when thinking about it. You know, what does a man do when he's got a starving family? Yeah. Do you think he's going to be polite? Anything. He'll do <laughs> anything to keep that from happening. To keep from watching his child starve to death. Yeah. Or even go hungry. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be alarmist necessarily. I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to inject what I think about, you know, social safety programs into the conversation. There are t- you know, the, it's not woke flake shit. It's not all that. It's, it's, it's just basic political science. There's right? another. There, I'm going to write <laughs> I, this down because we need to come back to that because you've just touched on something that I really want to get into as well that came from the Dan Carlin episode. And that, that's differentiating between woke flakes and liberals. Yeah. And differentiating between Trump bots and Q and conservatives. Yeah. Right. There has right. to be a clear line of delineation between the extremes and people who lean one way or the other. Right. Yeah. No, exactly. And I, I'm hoping that maybe over time the pendulums swing and eventually they sort of end up where they need to be. Uh, but, but right now we're going through a period where, remember, it was all Tea Party, Tea Party, Tea Party. Yeah. And then it was the 99, the 99, the 99. And then, it you know, and then, you know, and, and here we, oh, my God. And now it's now it's, uh, you know, woke flakes and all that kind of stuff. And here's your here's your. Um, what are the rooms they put in universities now when you have emotions? You have to go to this safe room. And, yeah, yeah the safe room that you have to go Quiet to. Quiet room somewhere. Like because I, I'm having feelings and I don't know what to do with it because I've never been taught how to handle I'm my triggered. own emotions. I'm triggered. Oh, God. <laughs> Fuck. I can't do it. I can't. Uh, See, this hard. is the, I'm, I'm having a visceral response right now. When I think about that, it says, Carlin talked about the new stupid in his episode last week, too. And it's just, oh, God. Okay, so how do I cut this off? How do I when I when I'm hearing the new dumb? I think he called it dumb. The new dumb. The new dumb. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So when I'm hearing AOC 
fart about cow farts. And I'm hearing people at the, the Democratic Socialist of America convention using the word comrade like I use the word like. And then whatever you were just talking about, I mean, how do you how do you shut that off? How do you shut that visceral response off and keep it sort of quarantined in its targeting toward the extreme? I think of I think because I think of all of us in a bell curve. I think they're on one side and they're in that 10 percent on one on the left. And then there's the 10 percent on the right. Uh, And the rest of us are sort of in the middle, a little bit left, a little bit right, somewhere in that middle 50 percent of a bell curve. And that's what kind of keeps me sane about this stuff. Cause I realize that those people, while they have uh, a loud microphone and they're able and they, and they create emotional reactions. So the TV loves them. Uh, they're actually a minority on both sides, a very small minority where most of us are. And, and I believe this, most of us are in the middle. You know, and maybe a middle, middle left, middle right, uh, but most of us are in the middle, and that's where mostly we're able to 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 get reasonable outcomes. I think the problem is, though, these folks on the far left and far right have such a loud amplifier in the in in cable news and uh, talk radio and whatever else. They make so much noise. They make us think that what they think actually matters because it doesn't. You know, because nobody actually cares. At least I I shouldn't say nobody. At least the middle 50 doesn't care. That's what I'm going to start. I'm going to start calling my people the middle 50. Right. Right. I would venture to say we're we're the middle 80 percent. Right. With 10 percent on either side and and about 80 percent of the population is pretty much rational. We, We may not all be great critical thinkers, but in the end, we all sort of as a population, and I've said this before, as a group, we generally come to a fairly reasonable outcome that hasn't always happened two things not always the, not always there's three things the amplification i think is less on cable news now than it is on twitter and it is on facebook i think that right. that super amplification that you're talking about is coming from social media it's, you're right absolutely you're there, absolutely right there are stories now that come into my, both my iphone and i see them on television periodically about how twitter is reacting as though twitter is, is this autonomous being Oh, fuck Twitter. Right? And uh, Facebook, yeah. how social media is reacting to some. So that, I think, is the amplica- amplification device. The second thing is when you're talking about minorities, you have to be really, really careful because Castro invaded Cuba with 18 people. Wow. I didn't know that. I think he la- I, I don't remember the exact numbers. It was a handful of people. Maybe 35 people landed on the beach in Cuba. He lost some people in the, the, go look it up. He lost some people in the initial battle. But he wound up taking that island and his brother is still in power some 60 years later. Yeah, yeah. So you don't need a majority. You do not need a majority to influence things, to take over the conversation, to take over uh, the political system. You need a very vocal minority, a very influential minority. And we do have that. I agree with yeah. you. Uh, I, I agree with you on that. And we're not at the point yet where people, well, maybe, maybe, maybe we are at that point considering what happened last week in Michigan, but uh, with, with the, with the Whitmer thing, but um, you know, maybe we're at that point, but I, again, I, I, I still think that the, the middle of the spectrum um, still, you know, exercises their ability to, to influence the direction of the country. 
it doesn't sound like it when you're listening to the news or the you know talk radio or watching cable news or looking at your Facebook feed. It doesn't sound like that. But if you look around, right, leave your leave, you know, take your eyes off the screen, your ears off the radio, walk around, talk to people, it doesn't feel nearly as bad as it does on television. That's absolutely 1,000% true. But explain to me how we got Donald Trump. Well, that, that, that's lack of critical thinking. That's, you know, that's the country looking for some direction. I think, it's a, I think he is a, he's a cry for help, right? The country sort of said, uh, well, and, and, and remember, he lost the election, right? No, um, he didn't. It, no, he didn't. Know, no, he, he didn't. He, he didn't get the popular vote. It doesn't the matter. That's not like how we keep score and you know it. But he lost the election. The Electoral College no, elected didn't. him, but the people didn't elect him. The Electoral College elected him. That's how we right? keep score in our elections. So he won the election. Come on. Well, that's that's We're not debatable. a direct democracy. No, no, and we shouldn't be. Uh, but you know, but we shouldn't. We, we also shouldn't have an electoral college. So I don't know how to how, to, we how do. to reconcile that. We do. Uh, <laughs> but the fact that the, the fact remains is he lost the popular vote by like three <clears> percent. And the electoral college put him put him in office. But I think I think he is was was sort of a national cry for help, looking for some sort of change. I think there are a lot of people in the country who were disenfranchised probably during the Obama administration somehow. Um, there are a lot of people who work in the Rust Belt and auto manufacturing, all that kind of stuff, I think were disenfranchised. And people were just like, we need something else. Somebody. And here comes this, this uh, reality show host, right? Um, not that much different than electing a movie star governor in California or a movie star president in 1980. And let's, let's see what this guy can do. And then we found out that he can't do much. So maybe there, maybe there's a correction coming. These corrections have happened, yeah. right? We've elected, we've elected schmucks before. And then one term later we make the correction. We'll see what happens next Tuesday. But, um, you know, I again, that's my that's my optimism coming out, thinking that, you know, in general, as a population, we tend to do the right thing. And when we don't, we make the correction. Give me a give me a parallel. Give me an analogy of a Donald Trump being defeated in the next election cycle. Well, I would say the, the last one and now obviously not a personality parallel, but I would say the last time this happened was was Jimmy Carter. Right. Carter was not known to be a great president. He was he was his presidency was um, He's ahead of his time. He was, but his presidency was lethargic. Right. Um, and there wasn't a whole lot going on. Uh, it was the only time that I can remember that we were at peace for four years. We weren't in a war. Right. Um, but he, but that's, you know, that's one of those situations where, um, he was, he, he, you know, the circumstances, you know, the economy and, you know, gas prices were insane. And I remember that I was a kid, mm-hmm. but I remember that I was, I was in, I think we were in uh, probably elementary yeah. middle school by then. Um, it was not good. The country wasn't good. It wasn't good for a lot of people. And so Reagan comes along with his, with his message of it's morning in America and bam, he becomes president. Yeah. And then four years later, people were, I'm better off than I was four years ago. Bam, he's president again. Yeah. So that's how, that's how that happens. And then we had George Bush in his one term uh, because he basically, there was, I think his presidency was fairly lethargic. He said he wasn't going to raise taxes. He did. A lot of people didn't like that. He also you know, did Desert Storm. A lot of folks were upset that after, you know, at the end of Desert Storm, he didn't continue 
<clears throat> I was in Desert Storm. He didn't continue. We didn't continue to take Baghdad. We didn't go on and just annihilate the country and get Saddam out of office at that time. Yeah. We, we, we did the mission. We did the mission that we were supposed to do, and then we stopped. And that, you know, and that basically, uh, the economy and that is what got uh, uh, Clinton elected. Yeah, what I'm hearing is, uh, particularly with Carter, I mean, with with George uh, the first, his he had an approval rating, I think, after the oh, after initial uh, foray into Iraq or Kuwait, yeah. whatever it was, it was up like eighty nine percent. Yeah, but then the economy took a dump, and that's how well, Clinton got elected. He raised right? taxes. He, yeah. The thing with him was no read my lips. No, you remember all that yeah, when yeah, he yeah, did yeah, yeah. raise taxes. Uh, that opened the uh, the attack line for Clinton, but that's ineptitude. You're talking with Jimmy Carter about ineptitude. Donald Trump is something more than inept. He is that. <laughs> I'm not saying he's not, but there's something else with him. There's some other thing that's appealing to something in this country that I cannot think. I mean, I, I don't think that Carter and George the first are parallels to what we're experiencing, what happened in 2016 and what we continue to experience now. I agree. I don't think they're parallels, but I, you know, as far as, but, but I do think that, you know, these guys, those guys were elected for some sort of change and maybe, maybe Carter was elected because of his sort of down home farmer, peaceful. We had just come out of Vietnam. We had just come out of Nixon. We had two years of, of right. Gerald Ford, which was, you know, which is, is like, a, yeah. Which, yeah, which is like a footnote almost right. And during his presidency, and Carlin forgot him. He was doing, he was running down the list of presidents last week. And he He's forgot Ford. Oh, right. I forgot Ford. Yeah. Well, so, most people do. <laughs> yeah. So coming out of, uh, you know, I think what, what elected Trump was, um, I don't know. I, you know, was it the tea party? Was it all of these sort of, um, people that were feeling like they were being run over by woke flakes, these vocal, I don't even know if woke flakes had been coined by the time 2016. That's mine. But, I'm the one that yeah. coined that last year. Oh, you so. did that? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's yours. All <laughs> right. I'll give that to you. I have my own word. Uh, if, uh, you know, I'm not sure if that's, I don't, I don't want to go, I don't want to go the cheap route and say, uh, you know, white supremacists and racists elected Trump. I don't believe that for one second. I believe some white supremacists and racists voted for Trump. I don't believe that everybody who voted for, I have family who voted for Trump and I love them and they're my, still my family and we still get along just fine. They are not racists. They are not white supremacists by any stretch of the imagination. Right. They, I think they found in him something, some charisma, some non-politician that they were just craving for someone who wasn't so polished all the time. Yeah, we haven't mentioned Hillary Clinton in this uh, formula either. The most hated woman in America not named Casey Anthony. Yeah, yeah, God, yeah, right. You know, and you talk about, I want to go back to the Electoral College and the the popular vote thing. It's no accomplishment to get 3 million or 5 million more votes in a presidential election, a nationwide presidential election, mm -hmm. 3 to 5 million more, I forget the exact figure, more than Donald fucking Trump. Mm -hmm. That is nothing mm -hmm. to brag about. I wouldn't be, I'm not saying this to you. I'm saying this to just in general to the population. I've been hearing this for four years. She got 5 million more votes than Donald Trump. Ooh, goody for her. Yeah, that's a sliver. What the right? hell? Come on. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a sliver of votes. It's not exactly a resounding success. No, right? I, I did the math on it. I mean, if you boil this down to instead of uh, 118 million or whatever it was, or 129 million, if you take that down, if you do the math down to a thousand, it's like she won by two votes. <laughs> it's nothing yeah well but, yeah that's how it works yeah and same thing know, happened to gore in 2000 right he right. he won he won 
by a sliver. Right. And who was in the election? Who else was in the election in 2000? Ralph Nader. Uh, Ralph Nader. And we had right. Jill the Vulture Stein in the election the last time. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. <laughs> we, we, we digress. We don't have... <laughs> <laughs> one 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 thing, one optimism, a little sliver of optimism that I'll give you is we don't have that that third party cock blocker in the election this time. Not a, not we've got other you know parties, but there's not someone that's as prominent as Nader or Jill Stein was right. in the, right. in those previous elections. So yeah. there is a little sliver of hope there that maybe we don't have a third party come in and screw the election up this time. Maybe I'm still nervous though, dude. You know. I'm not a Trump supporter, so I'm just going to put that out on your podcast right now. I think it's pretty obvious, you know, but I've already said that I'm a left-leaning centrist. That's but, fine, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden, but I, I think, um, or I already, I should say I already have voted for Joe Biden. <laughs> we sent our votes in last week. Uh, but I, I would say that um, you know, we, we have to be di- diligent about this. People who think that, that Biden's a shoe-in, we thought, we thought Hillary was a shoe-in. This is deja vu. It's like Groundhog Day. It, it, it is Groundhog Day. And if, if, it, if it comes out that way on Tuesday, I'm not, next Tuesday, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what my feelings are going to be. Yeah. I, know when I, I know when I think about it, uh, I, I, I get anxiety. I yeah. feel anxiety in my body, in my chest. Yeah. I remember thinking this back uh, probably two weeks before the election in 2016. I had it in my head. I was listening to the, the media narratives, and I was looking at all the polling. 538.com gave Clinton like an 85% chance of winning the election. It sounds awfully familiar to what they're giving uh, Biden's odds this time. And I was, I was like, okay, finally, we could just get rid of this cocksucker. Let him go. Get him yeah. out of the, the news cycle. You know, Let him go back to hosting a TV show. Let him start mm-hmm. his news network. Whatever. He's not a political thing anymore. I was, uh, I was assuming that was what was going to happen. Everything I hear, it sounds real similar to me as it did four years ago. It really does. Yeah, and coronavirus and has thrown everything. You know, that's a new, uh, that's a new wrench in things. So that's the that's an X factor. Yeah, uh, but again, I, I must insist that you know, uh, winning the popular vote by he and she did she did win the popular vote by three percent. But three percent isn't enough to win the electoral college because of gerrymandering and other electoral you know electoral college, lots of other things. In order to you know, gerrymandering has a lot the, to do with it. in the presidential it, election. Well, because of yeah, in the um, the way things are divided. Oh no, I'm thinking of the Senate. Senate, yeah, yeah, I'm thinking of the Senate. Sorry, uh, because of just the way things are divided up and and how uh, how many electoral votes there are and all that kind of stuff. If if you are a Democrat and you you win, want to win the election, you need to win it by like six or seven percent. So the polling wasn't or com- wrong. Or be competitive. Or be yeah, you can't blame the polling in 2016. The polling was correct. It just wasn't enough to, to get the election. You could win comp. all of those states by 10 million votes. You don't have to get more votes. You have to be, if you want to win as a Democrat, you've got to be competitive in Republican states, in red states. You've got to find red states that you can peel off. Mm-hmm. Right. You could win this election by 30 million in the popular vote if you just run up you know, the vote count in New York, Pennsylvania, or New York, uh, California. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Places like that, Illinois, you could do that. You're, and, and the vote total looked terrible, but you're not competing in Montana. You're not competing in the Dakotas. You're not competing in, in say, Texas. Right, right. You have to be able to compete in Texas. And this this is, I, I am a supporter. I adore the Electoral College. It's counterintuitive, but everything that I've read and seen uh, from the Founding Fathers about their fear and their terror of mob rule, 
<laughs> yeah. I, I, I get why, why they did this. They don't want 10 million people in California having their interests suffocate the 3 million living in Idaho. Mm-hmm. The people in Idaho have self-interests as well that may not line up with people living in San Diego. They are entitled to have a say. Just because more people live on the coast, you don't forget about the people living in the middle of the country. The the unfortunate side, and I and I have to agree with you mostly, uh, and and I have no uh, you know no feelings about that whatsoever. But but what I do have feelings about is that the the uh, the state rules for the electoral college are different in each state. Some states mandate that however the state goes, the electoral votes go. Some states don't. Yep. You know, so the state could could be a landslide for one candidate, and the electoral voters go in and they vote for the other guy. Yeah. and there's nothing that says you can't do that. Yeah, and it's people, not written down. People were praising this. <laughs> no, people were praising this in 2016 after Trump yeah. won the electoral college. They were saying, well, maybe the, the reason that's in place is probably because in case you get a batshit candidate who happens <laughs> to win, then yeah. you can have the the electoral college go in and and actually correct the mistake of the electorate, which they didn't do. They didn't do it. But nobody yeah. was complaining on the Democrat side uh, four years ago about that rule. They were hoping it would be invoked. But now, you see, the, the, the uh, he, he talked yeah, a lot about point. political hypocrisy in that episode as well. And this is the hypocrisy that, that really grates on me. And it's not your hypocrisy specifically, Brian, but I, I've heard this a lot over the last few years. You, not you, got to, I have to watch that you thing. I'm trying really hard. <laughs> but far left people, uh, the leftist doctrinaires. We're hoping and praying that those electors would turn on Donald Trump in 2016. Now they're horrified by the prospect that it could happen against them in this election. That's hypocrisy. Hmm. If it's not working in your favor, it's terrible. However, if it is in your favor, it's a blessing from God. Like the filibuster. Right. (laughs) Yeah. That's, That's a perfect example, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, they all want to talk about changing the filibuster when they're not in power. Yeah. But when they're in power, and we're talking about the congressional, you know, we're talking about Congress now, not the presidency, obviously. But right. but then but then when when they're when you're in power, you want the filibuster to stay put. Right. Can you imagine it, if uh, when Trump took over, he wanted to stack the Supreme Court? Oh my God! Yeah. Wow. No, it's, I can't imagine that. I, can you imagine the the reaction from the left now, though? <laughs> Since this woman's going to be probably confirmed, what tomorrow? Well, now they're talking about packing the court. <sighs> it's okay right? now, not right. stacking it, packing it. Two right. different things. That's a terrible idea. Uh, FDR looked at that back in the 1930s, and they took the temperature of the country and how he was going to fare in the next election if he did it, and they abandoned it. Yeah, no, be careful of that. <laughs> we don't need more. We don't need more judges. Yeah. Right. Honestly, <laughs> <sighs> yeah. God. Well, that's just my personal opinion. I, if nine learned people can't look at the constitution and rule you know constitutionally then we're in real trouble yeah yeah that's for sure because you know in all honesty the constitution is not that complicated of a document and it's not that long no it's easy right and their job is to look at the constitutionality of laws (laughs) and if, if nine you know learned judges can't do that based on what's written in the constitution then we're then we're just lost well precedents and all that too yeah. Prior rulings and stuff, and that's open to inter. Yeah, I could you, you can, yeah, you can change, you can change precedents. Yeah, you can change the constitution for crying out loud. Yeah, sure, 
So you, you said before we wrap up, you said that you wanted to talk to me about what your friend's wife, this conversation you guys had, you wanted me to remind you. Yeah, she has a really interesting history, and I know we've got to kind of wrap things up quickly here, but uh, she she came from, I don't want to call her out, and I don't want to put her on like blast or anything because uh, I barely know her. I met her for the first time out there, but she, she had a really interesting history. She came from a fundamentalist Christian background, uh, and she found herself trying to figure out a way to dance around it without getting too specific without her permission. Uh, she uh, decided that she was going to leave the church, apparently, and left uh, her place out east and went out to Arizona. That's uh, how they met in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And I had this wonderful conversation with her about uh, the connection between ideological religion. I, I've been framing ideology as a religion for years now, and it's the one idea that I've had one of the ideas that I've had that has really gained weight and really gained momentum is this this relationship between ideology and theology. So I was talking in, in terms of the ideological religion and trying to tie it into her experience with religion mm-hmm. and to see if she saw the relationship because she was a fresh, she was a blank slate, hate that term, but she was because I've never talked to her. I have no idea who she is, what she is, and vice versa. She has no, no, no concept of me other than what my friend had told her. And I wanted to see if this stuff lined up with her experience within the fundamentalist environment. And mm-hmm. she had, she just like nodded along in unison the entire time. She's not timid. She, I think she would have been <laughs> pretty happy to contradict me if she uh, wanted to. And the the crux of the conversation and what I was talking about was the pathway to empathy was that religion is in place to answer questions that we don't have finely tuned senses of perception. We can't, we lack the tools to really evaluate and judge and uh, perceive the world. And we have a lot of questions about where we are, where we're going, the, this infantile sense of uh, ego that wants to put us in the middle of the universe. And, you know, our perspective, the, the universe revolves around us. So we mm-hmm. tend to try to explain things from that perspective, but can't, right? It's yeah. impossible. So yeah. in comes religion. It gives us purpose. Where do, we, where do we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? What is my significance in this world? What am I supposed to do with my life? Religion fills that void and deactivates this curious nature, this questioning nature, this infantile, almost adolescent tendency to want to ask questions about everything. It frees the mind so you can live your fucking life. Yeah. Without no, I, questions. I, I, I have no trouble with that. I agree with that 100%. I have no trouble with religion for that I, purpose. Ideology does the same thing. Yeah. It become, well, it becomes a religion. We use the term religion when it's not necessarily associated with any kind of theology, right? Politics can become your religion, your yeah. whatever your beliefs are. Your psychology can become your religion, your whatever. Anything that explains everything. Anything that will free you from having to examine for yourself. Having to ask questions for yourself. Having to dig out John Stuart Mill's On Liberty here to try to learn how to be a critical thinker, how to be a devil's advocate, how to take the perspective of someone you may disagree with and and authentically try to see things from their point of view to see if they have a point. If you're coming from a doctrinaire perspective, you don't have to do that. They're just wrong. Going back to the, what we were talking about earlier, talking about the heat, talking about the outrage yeah. and those people. Yeah. When, when you're, you start talking about those people, what, rather than those people's ideas, when you start dehumanizing people. 
And that you know that makes a lot of sense, especially when you bring in the tribalism, because then you get the the you know the religious us versus them, right? My religion's better than your religion, and you have to believe the way I believe, or you have to die. Yeah, um, you know, because then it becomes you know dogmatic and imperative, or yeah. um, you know all that kind of stuff. Uh, so that 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 philosophy makes perfect sense. But I also think that uh, that you know, like you said, I think religion, you know, in some ways is a gateway to empathy. It does. Um, there's something about it that does cause you to think about other people in a non-adversarial way. Well, it's right? part of the domestication process. It's, it's, yeah. it's learning to deal with people and learning to um, help people empathize with people. I think it's part of the process of softening the barbarian edge, mm-hmm. you know, where you don't see mm-hmm. everyone else as just a resource. You see them empathetically as a human being. That and also religion has served a purpose of of, of keeping uh, you know keeping people. Um, what am I trying to say? At peace in one way, right? Sure. Keeping keep, keep you know keep keep you sort of uh, keep you sort of you know uh, calm and at peace with your life, so That's that you the can. Whole point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's control, right? right yeah. it's, a, it's a way of control, a way of keeping you. Uh, and I don't mean necessarily control in a bad way. I just mean that it keeps the population docile. Well, there's a quote that I have from um, Martin Luther, and I do not have the looking for the book, and I did not bring it in here when I switched everything around last night, but it's from Martin Luther, and it came from uh, Preface to Morals, another Walt Lip, uh, Walter Lippmann book. Ooh. And he's talking about, uh, again, I'm going to have to paraphrase this, and I'll probably add it to the addendum, but it's basically that, when you decide to leave God, okay, using this metaphorically, God is the, the thing that explains everything for you, but he's, he's speaking literally. Then you start to look in various directions so rapidly, looking for answers when you've left the certitude of God that you end up snapping your neck because there's nothing there. You are questioning absolutely everything and you will think yourself into oblivion. And that is the gift that God gives you, is the certainty. It calms you. It's exactly mm-hmm. what you were just talking about. And it frees that anx- frees you of the anxiety, the existential anxiety, and allows you to say, ah, now I can live my well, it's, life. It's fear, right? It frees you of the fear of not knowing. Yeah. You know, when it's God's will, then I don't have to do anything. It's not in my hands. Yeah. For some people, that's probably a great thing. That was all the preamble to the path to empathy, though. The, the, what the yeah. main point of this, of all of this was, was that you have to then try to look at people through the context of their daily life. They go to work every day. They are raising six or eight kids sometimes, right? They yeah. have financial problems. They've got car problems. You know, it's easy for me to sit here and dig into my books and write into my notebooks and record my little podcast after I've sat and pondered and philosophized on something mm-hmm. for six or eight hours. Some Most normal people can't do that. You can't do that, Brian. Mm-hmm. No, it's exhausting. No, I, it is exhausting. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard for me to carve out a couple hours for us to sit down here, yeah. you know, and do, and do this show every week, but I enjoy it. But, but what you're talking about is empathy, right? You're, exactly. You're experiencing empathy for your fellow man and their their need for a religion, for whatever reason. Something and, and to answer the questions because they do not have the time and, you know, sadly, the mental capacity, sometimes, yes. sometimes, to explain it for themselves. They need that. They need it. 
Mm-hmm. So, and some people make science their religion, right? Which is somehow an oxymoron, but <laughs> but it, but you know what I mean, right? Yeah. The, the science becomes the, the religion, and sure. if science can't answer it, well, it just hasn't answered it yet. So, my my final point on this was that now, if you can if you can say that, if you can understand what I'm talking about and empathize with people and why they need theology. Okay, then you can take that and you can apply that to ideology as well. Why people are so willing and so susceptible to doctrine, political doctrine, because of the same things. They don't have the time to do the research. Now, this is where I I would add, if we had more time, I would add data overload and everything coming in through your phones and your devices to convolute reality. And nobody has the time to sort through all of that. No, no. And the paradox of that is, you know, we, we talked about how all of this technology was supposed to free up our time. Yeah, it's and not. It actually, it, <laughs> no, it made, it made us busier and crazier. Yeah. That's the path to empathy. And one, one of the things that I wanted to get into really bad with you today, Brian, I wish we, I wish we had the time to do this because he had gotten into that in that podcast, the Dan Carlin Recipe for Caesar podcast about just that very thing because I have a hard time with empathy sometimes. When I see uh-huh. the new dumb, when I see stupid on parade enough, yeah. I go into the uh, Kirkian mode, as he talked about in the show, right? And well, you know, not suffering fools lightly is, doesn't mean that it's an empathy issue. It's just calling out stupid when you see it, calling when, out dumb when you see it. The problem is, is that I don't just do that. And I, 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 call, <laughs> I don't. And I, I, have to, I have to admit it. I have to own it. Because when, when I see it enough and, you know, Captain Kirk takes over, the emotions take over, I, I do. It's easy. We generalize. It's so much easier. I can't engage in 320 or 30 million cases of nuance with everybody. So I see this enough. The tigers bit me. I'm not going to go near the tiger. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Well, maybe we can talk about it next week. We still have a week before the election, and maybe we yeah. can pull that in I may, to next week's. Because that sounds like a great conversation. I may actually do a solo on this this week. I may okay. I may go through and uh, dig out. The you need to get that out of your head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it it is a problem. I mean, he he really spoke to me personally in that yeah. episode in more ways than one. Well, it's a fabulous episode, and it, yeah. I was I was drawn into it. Most of the time, I get about halfway through a podcast, I'm like, okay, this is this is fine. Yeah. Uh, but uh, this one, I was actually I was into it the whole time. It, it was it was actually very good. The name of the episode is Recipe for Caesar. It's Dan Carlin podcast series is called Common Sense. It's not his hardcore history. It's common. It's so good. I wish he would do more of those. Yeah, I really do. God, it was good. I love the way he presents it. It's just really well done. Yeah. All right, let's wrap up here. How's that sound? Yeah, that sounds great. Concern yourself with bigger things You catch a pull and ride the dragon's wings Cause it's the heat of the moment The heat of the moment The heat of the moment Showed in your Well, there it is. That is episode number 92. Most of it, anyway, a little bit still to come right here, actually. Thanks to Brian once again for uh, sitting in. A couple of things that I sort of noticed in the editing process, some thoughts that maybe got lost in the conversation there. One thing that I wanted to get to was 
reiterating the idea or re-asking the question, are we making ourselves organic pieces of agitation, mindlessly triggering the heat that we talked about at the outset, little personalized, personal-sized outrage manufacturing devices. We go online, go on social media, try to own the other. Are we inadvertently, mindlessly doing exactly what the talk radio folks tried to do 30 years ago for our own exploitation, our own attention, to build our own little brand within our circle? Is that what's happening? I've had this in my head for a really long time. I've been guilty of this. I'm not pointing the finger directly at you, only you. It's aimed partially at the mirror as well. I talked about this uh, before on the show. I made a conscious decision once upon a time. I was trying to figure out what would help. What's going to change people's minds? What's going to help them to see how stupid they are? And I came to the erroneous conclusion that it was shame. It's happened right around 2010. And really shaded and painted my online persona for the good portion of, of, the, of the next decade. That's agitating someone. Using myself as the poster board material. This is what those liberals are like. You don't want to be one of them. You don't want these people taking control of anything. Countless members of the other side doing the same thing to me, still doing it. I have one guy right now in mind. I could name him. Few of you would know exactly who I'm talking about. He comes from the other side of the political spectrum. He does exactly that. Trying to agitate, trying to use the poster board material, the liberal poster board material, to agitate and lather up his friends, his fans. Using these personal examples, a lot of people go into his Facebook profile and will argue with him, saying some of the most ridiculous shit from the left because they're agitated. They're you know, riled up, and they go into their talking points mode, their little Manchurian propagandist mode, and try to own him and try to own his friends. Never works. Never happens. Nobody's mind has ever been changed in that way. Not that I've ever seen. That's how I think we do it. I think that's how we turn ourselves into these little outrage manufacturing machines or agitation manufacturing machines. Agitation, outrage. What's the difference here? What is the distinguishable difference between the two? Do you know? Could you name it? I'm not 100% sure I could. That's something that's worth exploring. Something else I wanted to get to, starving men. We talked about starving men and how people who are starving tend to revolutionize. They become susceptible to the machinations of a demagogue, of a cult leader. Anyone who will promise to provide the thing that they desperately need. These are the people who do revolutionize. Eventually. I talked about Castro in Cuba, the Batista regime. How was it that 18 people could land after sailing across the Caribbean Sea in this decrepit old yacht named Grandma, however many people it was? How could they land on that island as a ragtag team of revolutionaries and have the end game be they march into Havana and take control of the entire island? How could that happen? Poverty. People watching their families, their children starve. Struggling peasants in the sugarcane fields. They were receptive to Castro and Guevara's message. 
They were willing to join the fight. They were willing to help him build an army. An army that eventually became strong enough, large enough, was led adeptly enough to conquer Batista's army. The ground was fertile. Starving men will do anything to provide for themselves and for their families. Brian's right about the social programs. That's how we didn't become a communist nation, or one of the reasons anyway, during the Great Depression. That was one of the last great communist movements in the country was during the Depression. Fertile ground. People needed help. People were starving. They needed social programs. They needed help. The economy wasn't working. It was broken. Communism looked really good to people who could not feed their families. And what saved us from that was Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his New Deal programs. He gave some of those socialist programs to the people, thereby taking the temperature down, thereby making it a little less imperative in many, many people's minds that communism became the new way. In a lot of ways, FDR's New Deal saved us, possibly, could have saved us from communism. Or at least a communist revolutionary movement, a real one. Brian's not wrong about that stuff. And with the economy the way it is, even if you don't see it, it makes people susceptible to demagogues, extremist ideology, anything promising them relief. Relief from struggles. Starving men will do anything. But here's a little dash of salt to that stew. What happens? How much worse is it when that man has surrendered his ability to self-sustain? People in the 1930s could grow their own food. They were farmers. They could go out. (laughs) They had cattle. They could grow at least a garden, right? How many people can do that now? How many people have the skills, the inherent self-sustaining skills, to take care of themselves absent the economic infrastructure? What happens when that starving man has become completely dependent upon that infrastructure, an infrastructure that has collapsed or is collapsing? He's got even fewer options than they had in the 1930s. So when you talk about depression-grade economic catastrophe, when you start exhaling those fumes, you have to keep in mind that we are not dealing with the same breed of people that experienced those things in the 1930s. How much more desperate are they going to be than they were even then? So do you have to have that extreme? Do you have to get to that economic extreme when you're dealing with people who are less equipped to sustain themselves? Do you have to go as far down the economic vortex until you have that ground that's fertile enough? It's a scary thought. Brian talked and made a lot of sense talking about the, uh, what was it he said? I wrote this down somewhere. Talking about the, uh, oh, the middle 80%. The middle 80. I think it's closer to 60 or 70, but whatever. It doesn't matter. And how that, that silent majority will hopefully, in his mind, his optimistic mind, steer us towards sanity. While he was talking about this and shortly thereafter, I remembered watching Jane Fonda on Bill Maher. She was on his show back on September 18th of this year. The woman's crazy. Her eyes are just wild. She's 82, 83 years old now. Well past her prime, clearly. Both talent-wise and cognitively, apparently. When he was talking about how the majority is going to steer the ship of state through this iceberg field, hopefully. 
I remembered something that she said. Went something like this. You only need three and a half percent of the population and then you win. And we, we have that. If we see there's there's the social scientists have done research. There are 23 million Americans who know there's a climate crisis, know that it's real and that it's caused by people. And they've never done anything because nobody's asked them. They're the great unasked. And, and that's why Fire Drill Friday was so exciting and so successful is because people were coming from all over the country that had never done that before. And they stood with me and they engaged in civil disobedience and they risked getting arrested. And they felt good because they were putting their whole bodies on the line. And it felt good, even though you were giving up control because you had these zip ties on your wrist and the police were in charge, but you were empowered. So that 23 million people were going to be asked. We have to ask, right? So yeah. that's, that's really important. She says you only need 3% of the population. And what she's talking about, she's a little nutty. Her eyes, she's got these crazy eyes now. I don't know if you've seen her lately. But I want you to go back to 2009 and the hatching of the Tea Party. The Tea Party was an extremist movement consisting of the extreme right-wing fringe. No one would ever claim that the Tea Party was the majority of the country. I don't even think you could say that the Tea Party was the majority of the Republican Party as far back as 2012, right? They were a significant vocal minority who created enough turbulence within their own party to basically rot it from within. If you look at the course of events, the course of electoral events since 2009, it runs in a straight line to the orange man with a bad comb over. They were never a majority, but they altered the party. They created enough of a reaction within the party to make Donald Trump possible. You don't need a majority. This is what terrifies me about the far left because I've been seeing the symptoms of the same damn thing that happened with the Republican Party over the course of the last decade starting to happen within the Democratic Party. It's clear. Now, the Democrats reacted a little bit differently than the Republicans did. They took, or seemed to, in my view anyway, took control during the primary process this year. Said it a hundred times, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders were getting higher individual votes because they were the only two far-left extremists in the primaries, whereas the moderates were splitting the votes between, I think, four people. You're splitting these votes up. You're splitting the moderate vote four ways. You're splitting the extremist vote two ways. Bernie Sanders was on his way to the nomination. Democratic operatives are not stupid. They could see the vote totals. They knew that, their, that the base of their party was not far left. All they had to do was add up the, the totals of those four moderate names during the primary process, and they were consistently obliterating both Sanders and Warren, and Sanders and Warren together. However, splitting the vote up four, four ways, they were handing the nomination to Bernie Sanders. Well, they fixed that. Klobuchar went away. Mayor McGay went away. I forget who else. They coalesced around Joe Biden. And when that happened, Bernie Sanders sank like a damn rock. They gave agency to that moderate majority. Whereas the Republicans were afraid to do that. Or, I guess in retrospect, I guess maybe they did. Mitt Romney was nominated in 2012, wasn't he? 
So I guess there's a chance that, I don't know, is Joe Biden this year's Mitt Romney? I don't know. If he is and Donald Trump wins his election because not enough radicals are motivated enough to get to the polls, it just pretty much proves my point. That you don't need a majority. You don't need to be the majority to affect change and revolution. You just have to hit a point of critical mass. You have to be loud enough and influential enough with your voice to essentially dominate and shout down the moderate majority. Now, George Orwell had this quote about how you shouldn't listen to the 5,000 people screaming and chanting inside Albert Hall. You need to listen to the 5 million people who are not there who don't go to Albert Hall to the political rally. That's not happening. That did not happen with the Tea Party. That's not, it's kind of happening. It's trying to happen. Maybe maybe it's, it's an experiment in that happening with Biden. Maybe he's given, you know, the, the token of VP nomination to Kamala Harris to sort of pacify Bernie's babies, whatever. But the people who are showing up to the rallies, the people who go to these uh, arenas, They do not speak for the majority. They're the loudmouths. I think Brian touched on that or elaborated on that a little bit during the episode today. The point being that you do not need a majority to ignite a revolution. He mentioned the American Revolution in the show today. There wasn't a majority of people that supported separating from England. They had serious problems mustering an army. Some of that was due to, you know, pay, not being able to feed them, not having a strong enough federal government to provision the army. Had soldiers that were running around the countryside on the East Coast, stealing from farmers, stealing from the people they, 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 they presumed to say that they were trying to liberate. Well, why were they doing that? Because the federal government was so damn weak, had no way to enforce any sort of taxation from the states or the colonies, I guess, at that point, that they couldn't feed the army. The army was literally starving. You've all seen the images or heard about the images of Valley Forge. Starving army. Have you ever asked why they were starving? The government couldn't do anything. The government was too small. It was too inept to be able to provision its own army. But to reiterate the point, the colonists did not have a clear mandate from the population to separate, to secede, to form an independent nation. There were plenty of people who were still loyalists who wanted to be part of England. And Washington's army was constantly fighting that battle. I'm going to go back to one more thing from Jane Fonda because uh, this ties into something else we were talking about (laughs) big time. And I really don't like the fact that Jane Fonda is this much in my head today. (laughs) But we were talking about the need for religion. The allure of religion, why people need it, why people want it, be it the theological or the ideological variety. When I play this clip, I want you to think about the moral imperative. I want you to think about self-righteousness, and I want you to hear, hear the narcissism. I mean, you're one of the bravest people I've ever met. Well, but see, I didn't always. I spent a third of my life... Uh, just a, a nebbish, a nothing, <clears throat> hedonistic. I had, I didn't even know why I was alive. I know what that feels like to not know why you're here, to feel like your life has no meaning. And I can tell you the difference between that and being willing to put yourself on the line and stand up for what you believe in, especially if the future of the world's at stake, that's a better way to be. So I, I know the difference. I haven't always been this way. 
Is that... <clears throat> did, did that change come about because a change in your personal life? I mean, I watched your documentary like three times. I thought it was so awesome. Where, you know, you talk about first you were in the shadow of your father then your first husband, then your second husband, then your third husband. And the fifth chapter is finally you get out of the shadow of men and you find out your hero is you. <laughs> is that what changed? No, I never thought that hero was mine. No, I, 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 I made the change because I've read a book and the book was given to me by men, by soldier, American soldiers. They're the ones that made me open my eyes and see what was going on. So... There's a few good men that are going to join us. There were always more women than men, and they tended to be older because older women are so much braver. Uh, you, you certainly are. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Did you hear the uh, the other guest back there laughing? Oh yeah. The first thought when she said, "Well, there are a few good men." Is fuck you, bitch. Thanks for that patronizing breadcrumb, bitch. My very first thought when I heard that, isn't that nice? You talk about partitioning, you talk about, you talk about narcissism, you talk about a tribal politics. A woman saying there are a few good men, it plays into this, this narrative that we hear so much now, how men are pigs, men, men just need to get out of the way and let the women take over. Narcissism. That was not the entire point of me playing that clip, however. Did you hear what she said about knowing why I'm here? She's talking about being part of something bigger than herself on the righteous side of the battle to literally save the world. A moral imperative leading to self-righteousness. It bled from that clip. Self-righteousness bled like menstruation from that clip. This is a textbook self-definition of fanaticism. This is why ideology and religion, when you cross a certain point and you let it seep into your DNA and your identity, ideology and religion to me are indistinguishable. They both provide the same things. Meaning, purpose, righteousness fighting on the side of good against evil. Good and evil is all over this clip as well. I don't think I played any of the stuff where she's talking about Trump or talking about how the Democrats have to grow some balls or some ovaries and not let Mitch McConnell and the Republicans appoint a Supreme Court justice. This was the day, I think, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. That's why they were having the conversation in that context. Well, I would like to point out to you that they're going to have, they're going to get their way tomorrow, most likely. By the time you hear this, it might have already happened. We will have the Supreme Court justice already in place. Meaning, purpose, and righteousness. Providing meaning, for your life and your place in the world. Religion and ideology, when it's taken to the extremes that the doctrinaire blinders are put on, they are indistinguishable. Just worshiping different gods. The self-righteousness comes from a different spring. The moral certitude, the moral imperatives come from separate springs, but I think underground they're fed from the same place, and that's egocentrism, that's narcissism. 
the need to feel like you're at the center of the universe in a righteous battle, part of something bigger than yourself. There's an army ad. Have you seen it? I want to be part of something bigger than myself. It's huge. It's tribalism. Being part of a group. Fellowship. It's part of who we are. But when that self-righteousness takes over, and moral certitude takes over, that is the pathway. I've talked a lot about pathways in this show, but that is the pathway to totalitarianism, dictatorship, coercion. Whenever you feel like you know better, Daenerys, how do you build a better world, Daenerys? I know what's good. Well, what about the other people who think they know what's good, Daenerys? They don't get to decide. I get to impose. I watched Game of Thrones all the way through again. Ah, that's how I've been decompressing. <laughs> the Daenerys Targaryen character in that show, if you watch from beginning to end, almost mirrors the life trajectory or the political trajectory of so many well-meaning liberals that I've met in my life. They start from a good place. They really want to help people. They really want to build a better world. They want utopia. But they fail to see or detect when they cross that line into self-righteousness, into this willingness to engage in coercion. And that comes from from everything that I've seen, everything I've read, everything I've come up with, that all stems from a really simple, infantile place, egocentricity. The need to feel important, the need to feel meaning and purpose. Know your place in the world and understand it to be on the righteous side. Ideology, religion. Boom. So we know what ideology and what religion provide. And I've already talked about what happens when you take that away from people. Propaganda. I talked about it in the context of that. Talked about this last year. Jacques Lule's book touches on this. What happens when a propaganda system, a belief system, is taken away and you no longer have that sustaining nourishment, that guiding source of energy and, and, and meaning and purpose and all that. What happens when that's taken away? Sounds an awful lot like what happens to people when they lose their social media feed. Some of it anyway. But anime, the complete sense of a lack of direction, being lost, depression, confusion, You have lost your compass. You have no idea where to go. And you probably haven't thought for yourself in years. You have forgotten how to do it. The faculty of critical thinking, of independent thought, atrophies. And Alul put forth that it's incredibly difficult to get that back, if you can do it at all. That it takes a lot of work, a lot of vigilance in order to regain that independence of thought so you can actually see and evaluate things for yourself. I mentioned a Martin Luther quote in the episode today. And you have to think a little abstractly here because Martin Luther was a theological guy. Okay, What I'm about to read to you, he was talking in the literal sense, literal God. In my context, for the purposes of this show, I'm using it metaphorically because I think God, I think the doctrine, the the political doctrine, the deities, I think they have different names for the same thing. Whatever explains the world and your place in it for you. 
whatever gives you that meaning, that purpose, that self-righteousness, and that sense that you are part of something bigger than yourself. Whatever that is, in my mind, I think that is the multi-definitional interpretation of God. Now, this quote was used by Walter Lippmann in his book, A Preface to Morals. A lot of people think this is his best book, <laughs> and I, I, I can see why. But this is a perfect companion to that <laughs> so often mentioned Joan Didion essay on morality that I keep talking about. This is an entire book on morals, a preface to morals. And the opening chapter is the problem of unbelief. He's talking about what people lost when they lost God, what we lost as a society when we started killing God. That's the opening chapter, and that took him to Martin Luther. Now, I'm going to read part of this is Lippmann himself, and then I'll, I'll let you know when I get into the Luther quote. Now, he's talking in the context of abandoning God and standing on your own two feet here, trying to critically think, trying to see the world with your own eyes. And this is why it's so difficult, or he's, he's at least exploring how difficult it is here. He says it's all very well to talk about being the captain of your own soul. It is hard, and only a few heroes, saints, and geniuses have been the captains of their souls for any extended period of their lives. Most men, after a little freedom, have preferred authority with the consoling assurances and the economy of effort which it brings. Then he uses the Martin Luther quote. goes like this, If, outside of Christ, you wish by your own thoughts to know your relation to God, you will break your neck. Thunder strikes him who examines. Again, you have to think metaphorically here. He isn't, but I am. When you lose your God, be it political or theological, According to Martin Luther, thunder strikes you because you have to start examining. You have to start thinking for yourself. God isn't doing it. The political party, the platform, the blank, isn't doing it for you anymore. You can't go to Fox News and get your daily scripture or CNN or MSNBC. You have to do it. Thunder strikes you. It's hard. You will break your neck, according to Martin Luther. I'm not sure if he's referring to Martin Luther. Was he the Council of Trent? If he was, he's talking about Martin Luther. If he's not, he's talking, he's talking about somebody else. But he goes on to use another quote. He who is gifted with the heavenly knowledge of faith is free from an inquisitive curiosity. Let me repeat that. He who is gifted with the heavenly knowledge of faith is free from an inquisitive curiosity. Apply that to politics. He who is gifted with the political knowledge of faith, of belief in the party, is most definitely free from an inquisitive curiosity. You are being told what to think. You are ingesting. You are not organically creating your own thoughts. This goes back to so much that I talked about with the propaganda series last year. The thoughts, the opinions are not yours. You don't know what you think because you don't. Again, you have to understand, I'm using the you generally here. I, I hope I'm not making you feel defensive. I tend to do that. I'm having a problem with this. <laughs> but if this is you, if you're a doctrinaire, if you go out and seek your daily morsel, or your hourly morsel, or your minutely morsel via the phone from one ideological site or source or another, you are not thinking, you're ingesting. That's the you I'm talking to. If that's you, then you applies. 
sorry. Free from an inquisitive curiosity. Finishing this paragraph, he says, uh, this is Lippman talking now, these words are rasping to our modern ears, but there is no occasion to doubt that the men who uttered them had made a shrewd appraisal of average human nature, you think? The record of experience is one of sorties and retreats. The search for moral guidance, which shall not depend upon external authority, has invariably ended in the acknowledgement of some new authority. And then about two-thirds down this same page, <laughs> moral certainties jumps out, partially because I highlighted it three times. <laughs> but he's getting into moral certitude. And on and on and on. It's really easy to have everyone give you the answers. It's incredibly difficult to go out and find your own. Now, past empathy, data overload, all of this stuff. There is some room for forgiveness. There's a lot of room for understanding. But, while empathy is great, it is. It's useful. It's essential. Understanding is commendable. But where does this stuff lead? Even if I can empathize, even if I can understand, even if you can empathize and understand, fine, great. Now, we empathize and we understand. Where does this lead? Irredeemability is an idea I hadn't really thought a lot about. I come from a utopian, hippie, liberal background, a little bit of a spiritualist. I think there, there are solutions to everything. I like to think that. H.L. Mencken suggested to me the fact that irredeemability is something that needs to be looked at and needs to be accepted at some point. What if this need to feel at the center of the universe, this need to have everything explained for us, the need for social status, the need to feel as though we're part of something bigger than ourselves, even if that thing is complete bullshit. Tribalism, the negative kind, the corrosive kind. What if all of this stuff is uncurable? What if we are irredeemable? Where does that lead? I cannot subscribe to my friend Brian's optimism. Because I am open to the fact in my head, in my mind, that this problem we're experiencing exponentially worse, it seems like, every single year now, that it's irredeemable. It's unsolvable until we can solve ourselves. And if we don't want to solve ourselves, if we don't want to or can't, don't have the time, the cognitive horsepower, whatever, whatever the reason is, it doesn't matter. If we do not engage in that collective human introspection, how you can come to any other conclusion other than <clears throat> irredeemable. <laughs> I'm at a loss. I'm looking. I'm looking. I'm looking. I can be convinced. I want to be convinced. <laughs> but this is why, at least part of the reason why I have the triage and mitigation tendency. That we have to work with this. We have to figure out and prepare how we are going to do this as the shit, as bigger piles of shit continue to hit the fan. And if you go back to Dan Carlin's episode, A Recipe for Caesar, he's a historical genius. Caesar's coming. It may not be Trump. It may be coming from the other side. 
Do you value your freedom? Do you value freedom of speech? Do you value being able to elect your leaders, self-determination, all that good stuff, all those foundational American principles? Do you value them, especially if you're a liberal? Do you take those for granted, those freedoms? Are you aware they exist or are you just used to them and think they're just always going to be there because they've always been there? The society that can't tell truth from falsehood does not remain free. The society that doesn't care about the distinction between truth and falsehood probably doesn't deserve to be. I'm convinced that we are on that path. We are far along that path. We are nine days away from this fucking election. And I still don't see any indications that on that Wednesday, things are not going to be anything but worse. As people start challenging the validity of the electoral institution, the veracity of the vote. I hate to be a downer. I do. I'm trying to embrace this this lighter side of Todd that Brian talked about earlier. I don't know that this is a time to be light. I'd like to joke around with you. I like to laugh. I have a good sense of humor. I haven't deployed it in a long time, or very rarely have I deployed it in the last few years. (laughs) Maybe this isn't the time to be light. I don't know. But I can't sustain that. As much as I want to, and as as much as it would make me feel good, as much as it would make you feel better about listening to this podcast, I know that. You need optimism. You need some sausage party hope. And by God, I'm not I can't. I I cannot lie to you. I'm not gonna come on this show. Be rainbows and butterflies just to get a few more downloads. Show me your work. Somebody show me your work, and I'll happily adjust my tone. I thought this addendum was going to be about five minutes. Should have known better. I think it was Jane Fonda. There are some good men. You bitch. Thanks, Barbarella. (laughs) Crazy-eyed Jane. (laughs) <laughs> How's that song go? I am a Cotton Eye Joe. Crazy Eye Jane. See, I want to sing Crazy Eye Jane and Cotton Eye Joe, and I can't remember the lyrics. I am spent. Escapingthecave.com is the website. Go check it out. You should go look at my pictures, too, by the way. Upperworldphoto.com. You can buy one if you want. Be great. Seriously. Be great. Pay my podcasting fee for a month or a year. I started the music too late, and I'm trying to run the music bed out again. What else can I say? Preface to morals, Walter Lippmann. Buy it and read it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. So long.